All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Early in the evening, just about supper time, over by the courthouse, they're starting to unwind. Four kids on the corner, trying to bring you up. Willie picks a tune out and he blows it on the harp. Down on the corner, out in the street, Willie and the poor boys are playing, bring a nickel, tap your feet. Yes, indeed, it is a toe-tapping kind of day because it's time for another episode of the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. And I am Sid Dobrin, your host for this adventure, whether you're listening just about supper time or not. And I'm going to thump that gut bass and solo for a while because we have got a great conversation coming up with Dan Small, host of the Dan Small Outdoor Radio Show, Wisconsin's number one outdoor radio show. And yes, I do love me some CCR and some Fogarty. And do you know why all of their music is just great for anglers? Because those tunes are just catchy. Ha! Hey, after Dan and I rattle on about the scaly side of life, I'm going to turn some attention to Leatherwood Distillery's Sweet Feed Whiskey during the bourbon break. And then I'm going to count down my top 10 swim baits for saltwater. And hey, you know, I am a huge fan of Star Wars. I love the franchise I have since I was a kid. But, you know, there was this one character that I wish they'd focus a bit more on. He was a lesser character, a side character, but I think he deserves his own spinoff, particularly because he's really the only Star Wars character who fishes. Yeah, sure, Qui-Gon Jinn makes that stupid comment about there's always a bigger fish. But the real Star Wars angler hero is that great Sith bank fisherman, Darth Waiter. Yeah, he has that one scene with Fluke Skywalker. So you don't need a penny just to hang around, but I do hope you'll hang around because this is going to be another great episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Welcome aboard. All right, my listening crew, I am thrilled to welcome to the Rodcast this week, Dan Small, host of the Dan Small Outdoor Radio Show, Wisconsin's number one outdoor radio show, which airs on 22 broadcast stations. And it's been airing now for more than 15 years, if I'm not mistaken. And if that's not enough, from 1984 to 2020, Dan hosted and produced Outdoor Wisconsin, which was a production of Milwaukee PBS, but it also aired on not just that channel, but others all throughout the Midwest. He's a contributing editor for Wisconsin Outdoor News and a regular contributor to other publications, including Outdoor Life. Now, he's also the author of Fish Wisconsin with Dan Small, which was published back in 1993, and he's the author of Wild Harvest Cookbook and co-author of the official Outdoor Wisconsin Cookbook, which he co-authored with Nancy Frank. Dan also has a previous career as a professor of French literature, and if we're not careful, he may break into a lecture about the Little Prince. But I'm okay with that because, of course, I'm always excited to have another fishing professor on the show. Now, I met Dan a month or so ago at a media event hosted by the Association of Great Lakes Outdoor Writers and Riverbend Resort, and we spent some quality time together in a fishing hut out on the ice at Lake of the Woods in northern Minnesota. And after two days of sharing stories and telling each other lies, 
I knew I had to ask Dan to be on the show to talk fishing and such. So, Dan, it is great to see you again. I'm really glad we found some time to sit down and continue our conversation. Welcome to the Rodcast. Well, thank you, Sid. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's uh, it's only fair that we reciprocate because you were on my show not too long ago. And uh, here we are together again. Yep. And I appreciate that opportunity. That was a great conversation, too. It was fun. So let's begin where I try to begin all the conversations with folks on the Rodcast, and that's with a bit of origin story. Tell me, if you would, about how you got into fishing as well as hunting and other outdoor activities and how that origin led to the fantastic career you've had as a writer, a broadcaster, and as an outdoorsman. Well, Sid, I grew up in western New York State on the not quite on the shores of Lake Erie, but my dad was born uh, in Tonawanda, New York, and uh, I was born in North Tonawanda, right on the Niagara River. He grew up fishing the river. I had He had an uncle, my great uncle Herb, who had a bait shop, uh, basically a minnow dispensary right on one of the docks there in Tonawanda. And anytime we wanted to go fishing, we'd go down to Uncle Herb's and he would dip out emerald shiners a bucket full of uh, shiners for us and i don't think dad ever paid for them um and we fished all over upstate uh, western upstate new york and specifically um gosh the small trout streams of the hill country uh, east and south of buffalo and then some lakes and also of course lake area my first memory was uh, I was a, a toddler. I might have been about three years old fishing with my dad on Lake Erie uh, off of um, the Ontario side, Port Rowan, Ontario, as I recall. And I remember looking over the side of the boat. We were perch fishing and I could see this carpet of green and golds underneath the boat. And it dawned on me or he pointed it out. I think he probably told me those were perch. So this was literally a moving carpet a magic carpet if you will of perch and as i say that's my earliest fishing memory i fished with my dad on trout streams um, for for many many years and then when i could drive i'd go off and do it on my own and my brothers mike and pete who are three and six years younger and i would fish local quarries uh, including one that was right by I can't remember that. I, I want to say it's throughway exit 49. I think it's fenced now, but we would sneak in, we'd ride our bikes and we'd sneak into this quarry and we would have live chubs that we would catch in a little uh, trout stream, not far from home. And um, we actually sold bait. I think my dad's uh, and mom's water bill was higher than, and his gas bill higher than uh, any money we made selling bait, but it got us interested in those things. And we would catch largemouth bass on these live chubs. And anyway, then, gosh, I vacationed all over New York and Ontario uh, with family, uh, night fishing for bass on ponds and small lakes. That was a, a real hoot, throwing black hula poppers and jitterbugs in the dark when you couldn't see. And I guess from early on, I read, as people of my generation did anyway, the big three outdoor magazines, Outdoor Life, Sports of Field, and Field and Stream. And I uh, don't know when I decided I wanted to be an outdoor writer, but I uh, put together a little uh, very uh, imperfect 
uh, analysis of when um, you would see dead animals on the roads because we would drive hunting to, to go hunting and fishing and dad would uh, to keep us occupied would pay us a penny if we could identify an animal but he had to verify it too and there was a graduated scale a penny a nickel and up to five bucks for a moose and we never saw a moose but we were always looking for one but anyway i i put together this uh, this analysis that showed that april and september where and, and october where were the months where you would see more dead cottontail rabbits and other animals on the road send it to new york state conservationist and they actually published it and uh, that was my first publication, if you will. And the big flaw in that was that we did most of our, I did most of my riding in the car with dad in April when we went trout fishing and in September and October when we went hunting. So of course we were spending more time on the road, but you know, those are details. Anyway, um, many years later, I uh, had finished college and, uh, was teaching at SUNY Albany in New York and um, uh, had a, a hunting experience that basically was a story that wrote itself. I had a shot at a big buck in the morning on the last day of the season, thought I missed it, went back that afternoon on my wife's insistence and actually ended up shooting that buck and wrote a story called the, re I, I called it, second chance buck but uh bill ray the editor of outdoor life called it the reenactment and they ran it in the 1971 or 72 uh november issue of outdoor life and the rest as they say is history and uh, you know i i grew up hunting with my dad as well but but in new york you couldn't hunt legally until you were 14 but you could tag along and i was his bird dog and i'd carry his his rabbits and his squirrels and the like so Gosh, um, a rambling answer to that question, but I've been doing this a long time and, and been able to uh, to write and broadcast about it uh, I, for almost 50 years now, or, or about 50 years, I guess. Well, one of the things I like about that answer is how close you tie your experience to being with family, to being with your dad. And I know because when we were up in Minnesota, you had your son with you. I know that hunting and fishing and the outdoor life is also something you've imparted to your kids as well. Why was that important to you as a father? I guess it was important to me as a dad because I either, I mean, I, I, I just did it. That's what I did. You know, I hunted and fished and with no apologies. And, and once in a while, as you know, the circles we run in, sometimes you'd encounter people who say, well, why do you kill those poor defenseless woodland creatures? Or why do you uh, catch and release fish? You know, you're torturing them. Why don't you take them home and eat them? And all those, we've had those conversations. Um, but for me, it was a, a matter of lifestyle. And it was just a natural thing for me to take John uh, along and he would, ride on my back in one of those little uh, uh, kitty carriers. And when we went on hikes and um, as soon as he could comfortably walk along a trail, he'd go grouse hunting with me. And I have a great picture of him holding a snowshoe hare, which is about 50% larger than the cottontail rabbit. And he's about six years old. And the thing is almost as long as he is tall. And, uh, you know, he would tag along on trips uh, doing that. And, um, it's just what, it, again, it's what we did. And that's, uh, I wanted to share with him, you know, what was important to me in my life. And 
what has become important uh, to him in his life as well. Yeah, you know, I just recently watched parts of that Milwaukee PBS show that you did called Deer Hunt 2022, mm-hmm. uh, which just posted about four months ago on YouTube. And you include John in that show. How does it feel working with him on projects like that, where it becomes more than just a family outing? It's great, but um, he he tells the story um, occasionally, and and I've I've picked up on it because uh, it to me it's a great story. Um, years ago, when he was growing up, um, I would photograph him and he would photograph me. And at one point I was writing for game and fish publications, so two or three articles a month with a pen name called Gene Daniels, which is my middle name. And, you know, my first name, uh, transposed. Um, and one time he was maybe 11 or 12. I said, Hey John, you want to go fishing? And he said, looked at me with a real stern look, are we taking a camera? And I said, no. And he said, okay, then I'll go. Well, <laughs> um, you know, my editor back in those days, uh, Dennis Schmidt said, I think your kid has been in more photos in our publication than any other individual. And so John was tired of that, but um, he, he'd been on the TV show a number of times, uh, the, the regular weekly show outdoor Wisconsin. And for the last four or five years, um, he's been on deer hunt, Wisconsin, and it has been um uh, it just a, a, a real joy to me. The greatest joy really uh, in my life was him coming back from New York City in October of 2020, moving to Bayfield, Wisconsin, buying a house, managing the property where we have hunted since I owned it back, you know, in the 70s. And he's he's back here now. It's five hours from home. It's halfway to Lake of the Woods, but at least he's in the same state and we get together and um and it's not forced now. He he enjoys it, but he doesn't. I don't think he wants to make a career of it. You know, he's a kayak guide and works in a brewery and uh, is just now studying for his six pack license, his charter captain's license. He doesn't want to be a charter captain. He's going to uh, captain a sailboat and take people on excursions around the Apostle Islands. And that's something you need to do next time you come to Wisconsin or to the upper Midwest. Oh, absolutely. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. So I mentioned in the intro that you and I met on this media outing at Lake of the Woods for some ice fishing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we've talked about, that experience was something very new to me. But you were right in your element. Talk to me about your perception of that trip. Since on your show, you asked me about my perception on the trip. Talk to me about ice fishing up there on the Canadian border. Fair enough. Um, well, First of all, we had two feet of ice, which was not a lot of ice this time of, you know, late winter in uh, that far north. It was 26 to 28 below zero, as you remember. Um, and you poor southerners, I mean, you, you, you did well. Of course, you were well outfitted, well, well dressed. You had the clam outfit and uh, everything else. But uh, we, um, I, I have not done that much ice fishing in heated shanties. And as Paul Johnson, our host, told us, you're going to go from a heated cabin to a heated car to a heated fish house. And that was true as long as you start to remember to start your car before breakfast, because it took a half hour for it to warm up, you know. Um, 
that was uh, the way people fish in northern Minnesota. In fact, driving up from Duluth on Sunday, my son and I started noticing these trailers, these big trucks, you know, big uh, F-250 type size pickups heading south with these trailers. And after half a dozen of them, it occurred to me, those are wheelhouses. Those are campers with holes in the bottom and with an, uh, uh, a hydraulic system that raises and lower it, lowers it. You saw them there on the ice. Um, we didn't count them, but there must have been hundreds. It's a way of life there in Minnesota for those folks. And it's quite an investment. You need a, I don't know, fifty dollars to $70,000 truck to haul this. Lord knows how much they pay for these 30-foot campers with uh, holes in the bottom so you can ice fish. Um, I mean, those were big RVs, trailers yeah. with, that had those hydro. I was stunned by that myself because like you, I saw hundreds of them. I mean, yeah. just hundreds of them. Yeah, it was. Uh, and, and that's not our style of ice fishing. We used to ice fish when I lived up in Bayfield County, where John lives now, gosh, 40 years ago, we would walk out onto Lake Superior with a hand auger and we'd drill a hole. And we, I had some borrowed shelters, uh, just a pop-up teepee. Um, a friend of mine, a uh, guy who uh, makes the Stormy Cromer caps over in uh, Upper Michigan used to, I think he still does, he made these um, canvas tents that were heavy and cumbersome, but they, they were teepee-shaped and the wind couldn't blow them over and they were the standard ice fishing shelter on lake superior back in those days um so we would do we would do that and you'd get cold but gosh uh ice fishing the way we did it at lake of the woods uh, we took off our outer some of us took off our outerwear anyway and uh ice fished in comfort in a heated in a heated house i mean it's a different style yeah and like i think we discussed when it was minus 28 outside, which was a totally new experience for me. And then we walked into 70 degrees in the warm hut. You know, that's what? That's a 50, 50, 60 degree shift in one step. That yeah. was remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and it took some getting used to, especially if you wore glasses like you and I do. Uh, you'd uh, come in and they'd be fogged you'd step outside and they'd freeze and you'd have to scrape the frost off of them um but the fishing um the the action was okay but the size of the fish left quite a bit to be desired uh, as far as i'm concerned we you caught the biggest fish i um, did was it was not almost a, the size of the bait we use here yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah you could have you could have put that on a hook and caught a marlin down uh, down in Florida, I suppose. Yep. Um, and I asked our guide uh, Alex, um, what, why? Because I I said my listeners and readers are going to want to know why should I drive all the way to Lake of the Woods? And he said, well, you're going to catch a lot of walleyes and saugers, which we did, and you have a chance of catching a thirty inch fish, which we didn't, but. They're, they were down there. We, we had that opportunity. And he said, there are only two places in Minnesota where you have that, that kind of opportunity. And I think uh, Leech Lake or Mille Lacs, I forget which one uh, was the other. So that's the appeal. Plus, you know, just the whole mystique of going to the, the Canadian border. We could, we could have spit into Canada. We were that close. Yeah. I, 
I am still mentally trying to wrap my head around what we saw there. And I want to go back. Mostly I want to go back when it's warm because I want to see it with open water. You know, my, my mind can't grasp what that huge expanse of a white ice field looks like as a lake. You know, to me, it's a white field in my brain. I can't, I haven't figured out that this is a lake yet. And, you know, um, our, our, our friend, uh, Carrie Zilka and I were flying drones out there and I was looking at my drone footage and I still can't see that as open water. So I, I want to go back in open water and see it then too. I have been there a couple of times in uh, open water season and it's a big lake. As you say, it looks like one of the great lakes almost in size. You, you're, you know, you're standing, uh, it's kind of. It's an inland sea, really. You're standing at the edge of what could be the ocean because you can't see anything but water as far as the eye can see. Um, but there is structure. Uh, there are areas where there are thousands of islands, hundreds anyway. I don't know how many altogether. I have fished the Canadian side um, out of Morrison, Ontario. We went through Bedette and then crossed into the Canada and then drove for about an hour or two and and then took a boat to an island uh, that one of the neighboring resorts operates, Black Island Resort, Ballard's Black Island. And uh, we stayed in very comfortable cabins for a week, had exquisite food, food as good as what we enjoyed there at uh, River, River Bend, and, uh, and fished walleyes. And our job was just to catch enough for lunch, which you did very quickly. And the, the uh, uh, owners told us, because the limits are a little more strict, I don't remember the details, but the possession limit coming back across the border is strict. And they would tell us, okay, you're going to catch, you're going to keep two for lunch today, and you're going to keep one tomorrow to take home. And then anyway, we, they had it figured out and we did that. But the fishing was, it was like, bluegill fishing or crappie fishing just drop a you know a minnow on a jig over over the side of the boat of course the guides took us to the right place and um, and you'll catch walleyes along with occasional perch smallmouth big northern uh crappies we uh, went back uh, the next year and uh my group caught a couple of muskies i did not catch one i broke one off on a fly rod that the guide said that was a big fish and uh, I, I had a fluorocarbon bite guard and that's the last time I've used a fluorocarbon bite guard for muskies because, you know, I set the hook and it was two head shakes and gone. And uh, I don't know if that fish was, it was probably 45 inches, maybe, maybe bigger. Which if it got away, it's bigger. And, yeah, if it, yeah. It's it always bigger 50, if it got away. It was, a, it was a 50 incher, you know, anyway. Um, so, yeah, you should come back for the open water. And they do, um, out of the Minnesota side, they troll. Um, I don't know if they do much jigging there. That's all I've done on the Minnesota side. They put out planer boards and crankbaits. And quite honestly, trolling for walleyes is not terribly exciting because they don't fight that hard. And, you know, the planer board starts to go, go back toward the straight behind the boat. And you go, oh, okay, there's one there. And you reel it in. It's you know, but you can catch a lot of them and they're good at eating. 
as you as you know. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I was kind of impressed by that. That was the first time I'd eaten walleye, and oh. that ranks up there among my top favorites now. I mean, that's to me, that's now up there with flounder and pompano and mahi and grouper. That was good fish. Yeah, it certainly was. Um, and it was you won't get it any fresher. I mean, we caught it that day, and then they uh, the guys oh, yeah. uh, filleted it, and they served it up for, actually, as hors d'oeuvres uh, for one of the nights. It was great. Yeah, that was fantastic. So tell me a bit about the Dan Small radio show. All right. Well, it's been on since uh, 2006, I guess. Um, I started it with a, a colleague who was on my TV show, Judy Nugent, and it was outdoors with Dan and Judy. And then she took a full-time teaching job at her alma mater at uh, Loyola Academy in Chicago. And, and I said, okay, I'm, I got to find somebody else. So I, I knew Jeff Kelm who has worked with us on uh, outdoor Wisconsin and he had some radio experience and he and I've been together now for 16 years. Uh, he edits the show and he's on in the beginning and the wrap and occasionally does interviews if I'm under the weather or if my schedule doesn't allow me to, or if he's got somebody he wants to talk to. And we uh, we do the interviews throughout the week, and then he puts the show together late in the week, and we post it on our FTP site, which is on LakeLink, lake-link.com, and stations, 22 stations altogether, download the show and air it whenever they want to on the weekend, and it's also available as a podcast on uh, iHeartRadio or iHeart media i think it is and uh, lake link of course and now on the outdoor news podcast they they have a podcast page or tab on their website and we talk just as you and i are talking we talk with other people in the fishing industry or hunting industry or people with good stories um and we do three uh three segments per show and then we have a Madison uh, segment, which is an additional 10 minutes that we do for our one Madison station. That's on the podcast as well, but um, other stations don't get that. And we put it out there and folks listen and we have a lot of fun. You know, speaking of that, of folks listening and having a lot of fun, you know, prior to the radio show or at the same time, you know, we've talked about that you were hosting and producing Outdoor Wisconsin, the TV show, for 36 years. And I got to say, I was poking around looking for episodes to watch on YouTube, and there are a few that are up there. But I came across this short video that was posted 14 years ago by Peter Galens. And it's just him playing a guitar and singing the theme song to Outdoor Wisconsin which if my research is correct, was originally done by the Lost River Band. Now, Lost Nation String Band. Lost Nation String Band. Okay. Now, the Galen's video, just him and a guitar singing, that video has been viewed more than 10,000 times. But what caught my attention wasn't just the song, but the string of comments about the video in which so many folks commented that that song is such a great memory from their childhood and how they grew up watching outdoor Wisconsin. 
That's got to feel just great to know that your work has had such positive influence on so many people and that you're such a part of their memories of how they learned about outdoor life. You know, I, I saw that and I got to thinking about, you know, that, to, that that's the equivalent of me from when I was five or six watching Bill Dance Outdoors and how that Bill Dance theme song. But I was just shocked. I'm mean, not shocked. I was I was literally grinning ear to ear reading these comments about the theme song to your TV show has, you know, a cultural marker for so many of these people. Yeah, it, it, it really is. I, I forgot all about that video. I got to find that guy again and, and check it out. Yeah. That theme song. Um, there's a long story behind it. Uh, Warren Nelson, who's still around and he created the big top Chautauqua uh, tent show, which is now tent show radio. Uh, public radio stations around the country carry it. He wrote our, he, he had written several musicals and I knew that he had written, you know, a number of uh, tunes. And when we were looking for a theme song, I told my director, Jack Abrams, I said, well, I know a guy up North. And so I sent him a list of things, a kind of a shopping list. Here's what we do or going to do or what we are going to do on the show. And I waited and waited and waited. And uh, it was, I believe it was uh, the full moon in late October of 84 when he and the, the band, the uh, Lost Nation String Band, got together and recorded this song that he had just finished a day or two before. He works tight to deadlines the way I always do, you know. And uh, uh, I had sent him this shopping, this this laundry list, basically, of things we do. And so he's got one line in there. Hike, fish, hunt, camp, sail, canoes, ski, photograph, laugh, do what you want to, stick your nose where the wild rose grows. And, you know, um, so we were going to put the show on the air November 1st, and it's late October, and we don't have the theme song yet. But anyway, I got old of Warren. I said, uh, I need this song. He said, well, I got it done. So I drove up to, um, I don't remember where I was, but I drove home or back to Milwaukee from Washburn, Wisconsin, from Lake Superior, with the only cassette recording of that theme song, playing it in the, you know, the the cassette player on in, in my uh, little Honda station wagon. If it had eaten the tape, it would be all. <laughs> but that that uh, song was um, so catchy. And people would tell me, oh, we love it. Our Girl Scout troop sings it at, at campfires. And then about 20 years into the show, we had a new program manager. And he said, we got to get rid of that theme song. It sounds like Beverly Hillbillies. And, you know, <laughs> and also get rid of the logo. We got to change the logo. And I almost told him, well, why don't you get rid of the host and do a clean sweep? I didn't because he would have said. He would have. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, so they had a new guy record it and then somebody else record it again later. And it's and I took an informal poll at the sports show, uh, which I was just at this past weekend. Um but the year that they changed the theme song, uh, people would come up to me and the, ba the, the, the basic question everybody asked was, why did you change your theme song? And I said, I didn't do it. Here's the phone number of the guy who did it. And I took an informal poll and it was about 100 to 1 who liked the old version. Didn't convince him that he should change, uh, change it back. And anyway, um, yeah. I and I, I, if you'll bear with me, I have a story about that song besides the kinds of oh, yeah, I definitely want to hear that. 
that people uh, that people uh, talk about, um, and they they tell me that at the sports show every, every year. So uh, my friend Brad Karstad and I were setting up at a sports show about 15 years ago, and I was saying to Brad, you know, this is kind of getting old. I'm not sure why we keep doing this. And this lady comes up to our booth and she says, my brother's dog knows you. And I said, <laughs> okay, what's the story? And she said, my brother has a black lab. He, he's not a hunter, but you know, he's got the instinct. And when he hears your theme song, he runs from the kitchen to the living room and he sits down in front of the TV and he watches your show. And if you're pheasant hunting and somebody shoots a bird, he barks and he runs around because he wants to retrieve the pheasant. And I said, turned to Brad and I said, yeah, I wonder how many more pets there are out there who are, you know, tuned into our theme song. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's heartwarming to hear those stories. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I keep doing this at my age. Well, I mean, in that story you just told about the cassette tape, too, and how much, you know, not just the technology, but how everything has changed over your career, too. I mean, you, from what I read, you started telling these stories back in 1972, so just over 50 years of research yeah. and writing, specifically about Wisconsin. So what's your best Wisconsin fishing story, then? Oh, my. <laughs> um. Well, one, one that comes to mind right away is a charter trip that we did on Lake Michigan. Uh, we ended up uh, going out on Lake Michigan two or three times a year with different charter captains and filming a show for Outdoor Wisconsin because it's easy to do. You're going to catch fish. You've got somebody who knows what he's doing. You know, you know how that works. And the, the very first one we did, uh, this charter captain, Jack Remus, who died gosh 15 years ago now i think he he uh, offered it to the fundraising auction for milwaukee public television and one lady bought it as a birthday present for her girlfriend and she told her she didn't tell her what she was going to do she said i'll pick you up at five in the morning wear old clothes so you know we um we meet them at the dock and she learns that she's going charter fishing and anyway she hooks this monster Chinook and she's, you know, barely able to crank it in. And Jack Remus is coaching her. And, and she said, I can't do it. He says, you have to, you have to. Anyway, she caught that Chinook and then we hooked, we had a triple on three at once. And the two women were fighting fish off the transom. And I picked up another rod that had a fish on and I had to go pass that rod because that was a, a smaller coho and it was running all over the place i had to pass that rod under their rods and in front of them anyway we we got all three fish in jack got them all in the net and i turned around we all went you know just screamed uh, success and turned around and my cameraman wasn't there and i looked and he was up on the flybridge shooting down on us so we got the the climax of that scene um, you know, from the flybridge, uh, a, a smart move on his part. And, um, you know, that was my first charter trip and the, the first of probably 50 that we did over the years. Oh, that sounds great. You know, when people talk about Wisconsin and certainly, you know, we've talked about, uh, Minnesota walleye, but walleye are always sort of the, the, the conversation about Wisconsin and my good buddy, Pat Nye, the walleye guy, I'm sure, you know, Pat, 
He yep. doesn't let me forget that, you know, Wisconsin is where I need to come for a walleye. But there's a lot of other great fishing in, in Wisconsin, including some remarkable pike fishing and sturgeon fishing. Talk to me about pike in Wisconsin. Well, pike are uh, almost an afterthought for a lot of people. They are abundant. Um, they are, uh, you know, uh, the, the biggest predator in any lake that doesn't have muskies. And there are some lakes that have both. And they hybridize with muskies. Um, I think it's a male northern and a female muskie. I forget exactly what it is, but they make tiger muskies, which are um, uh, sterile hybrids, but fun to catch. And they're very, they're aggressive like pike. And they look like a muskie with, you know, some real wild stripes on them. Um, there are some lakes where you are, uh, you have a good chance of catching a 40 inch northern pike. And that's a heck of a pike. I mean, that's a 25-pound fish, maybe. Uh, the Madison Chain is is one, and uh, Lake Geneva, uh, uh, Geneva Lake. Lake Geneva is the town. Geneva Lake is the name of the lake. Um, Geneva is another one that where you can catch a big pike, um, big green lake. Um, and, you know, I fly fish for muskies, and pike are a good way to get started if you want to fly fish for muskies because they're more cooperative and more abundant more aggressive um and, and they'll they'll hit just about anything and uh, and they fight like the devil and and they taste good one of the secrets of pike and muskies um you know nobody keeps muskies unless they happen to accidentally kill one is that they're absolutely delicious if you think walleyes are good the white fillet from a northern pike is absolutely scrumptious there's there's a trick to getting the the so-called Y bones out of the uh, the side of the fish, but once you know how to do that, you get nice big chunks of white meat, and it's absolutely delicious. So, since you brought it up, tell me about fly fishing for musky, because now you're so far out of my element. I mean, I understand fly fishing. I've certainly read about musky, but what's the strategy here? Are we just talking streamers and heavy tippets? Uh, yeah, and uh, gosh, I wish I had brought some. Well. We're not showing. <laughs> nobody, it. nobody can see. see nobody it. can see it anyway. So, yeah. Um, the fish was this big. <laughs> yeah, it was huge. It was monster. Um, the the um, the the strategy, if there is such a thing in fly fishing for muskies, is to put your bait in front of as many fish as possible, or in a location that might hold a fish as often as possible throughout the course of a day and if you're lucky you'll get a follow or two or you might have one eat and then you maybe catch a fish um <clears throat> rivers are easier to fish uh, for to fly fish because muskies um, like all predator fish in rivers like trout and bass they hold in uh, natural holding cover behind boulders uh, the bottom of a uh, uh, riffles uh, wherever there's an eddy where the current speed changes and the nice thing about fly fishing is you can lay that fly close to the structure strip it that is pull the line twice or three times make it dart make it move and if nothing grabs it you can pick it up again and you can throw it at the next boulder and you can cover a lot more uh, holding water that way uh, than you can with gear because you've got to crank the, the crankbait all the way back or the top water bait all the way back. And there are times where you want to strip your fly all the way back to the boat and do the, the big figure eight, which is 
um, what most gear fishermen do when they're musky fishing uh, to try to entice a fish that would follow to actually take the bait. Um, my brother, Mike, ties these musky flies and uh, he, he has a world record and I've got a world record of, uh, on a tippet uh, class catch and release. He's got a 51 inch true musky that he caught on the St. Regis River in upstate New York on a fish on a fly he calls a hog frog and there's a guy named uh, rick custich who, who wrote a book on the, the latest book on fly fishing for muskies and he features mike's hog frog in that in that book and then i caught a 39 inch tiger which is not a huge tiger but nobody else had entered a tiger caught on a 25 pound tippet and so that's a world record until somebody gets wise and you know enters a, a bigger fish um, I'm actually doing a seminar on fly fishing for muskies this weekend uh, at a, at an event at something called musky school, which is put on by the capital city chapter of muskies Inc. And, um, I've done that several years in a row now at, at that event. It's catching on. I, I caught my first muskie on a fly back in the late eighties, um, on, a small lake or not a small lake, a North twin lake up in Northeastern Wisconsin and have been doing it ever since. I actually had done it for a couple of years before I caught the first one. And back then you were a, a novelty. If you were seen with a fly rod in a musky boat, now um, drift boats, kayaks, uh, rafts um, are popular a drift boat, especially with a, a rower in the, in the, center and a an angler fore and aft where you can cast to the both shores as you're going down a narrow river um you see it's not unusual to see three or four other rigs when you go to go fly fishing on some of our more popular rivers now that that to me sounds like so much fun i want to i want to try that it is it is you know i read a couple of your pieces in outdoor life um the one on um the ice on the Wisconsin river for walleye and sauger and how unpredictable that is. But one of the pieces you did for outdoor life really caught my attention. And that was about fishing on and forgive my pronunciation here, but the Navicagon in the Northwoods. And you talk about the brown trout there and the smallmouth bass, the walleye, the channel cats. Could you talk about the NAMI? And in particular, I'm interested in hearing about trout fishing there, since I've read articles and books about some pretty amazing mayfly hatches there in the summer. Yeah, you were close in the pronunciation, Namakagan. Namakagan, okay. Um, it's an interesting river. It, uh, it flows out of Lake Namakagan. There's a small dam there that um, creates a larger lake out of what were connected smaller lakes i don't know the history of it or when it was built but the river flows out of there and it's a warm water river for a number of miles and then it is joined by a couple of cold water trout streams and then for a stretch from uh, about the little burg of Seely, which by the way is where Sigurd Olson lived and his wife is from, and she was a urine holt and there's a urine holt forest there. So if the name Sigurd Olson means anything to folks, that's where Sig used to, used to live and where, you know, where he spent many, many years. And anyway, from Seeley down to Hayward, it's trout water. And 
Ernie Schweibert uh, wrote about the Namakagan. Also, um, Gordon Macquarie wrote about the Namakagan, and we're talking back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, Macquarie died in 56, so Schweibert or Schwiebert, I'm not sure how he pronounces it. Uh, the Hendrickson is one of the first hatches. It comes off oh, in early May, uh, late April, early May. And then uh, throughout the season, there are other hatches, a brown drake hatch. And and then the one you may be thinking of is the Hexagenia. Uh, I think that's the name I remember from yeah. reading about it. Yeah, so-called hex hatch. It's a huge mayfly that lives as a larva in the mud and comes out usually in late June, early July, depending on the river, and in huge swarms. And they simply, up, up north, they simply call them mayflies, or uh, sometimes uh, along Lake Superior, you'll, you'll hear them called bayflies. And like all night-flying insects, they're attracted to light. So uh, there are times when they gather around streetlights and fall on bridges, um, lit bridges in such numbers that they're, they're slick. The, the pavement is slick and you have to be careful driving. Anyway, uh, everything in the river comes up for the hex hatch and you fish it at night, you fish it by sound. So you've got to pick a stretch of river that you, uh, that you know well and we're talking, you know, one or two bends is really all you need because you got about two hours of uh, peak fishing and you may catch, um, you may catch two or three big trout. You may catch 20, uh, but that's the time of year when you have the chance of catching a, a really big trout on a, on a dry fly. And we don't worry about tippet strength or tippet size. You know, it doesn't have to be real fine. Six pound test is good because uh, you want to horse that trout out of the alders uh, and, and play them in open water if you can. Um, there are other streams up there. The Brule and the White are two in particular that have great hexagenia hatches as well. But the Namakagan is uh, is known for it. And then down below Hayward, it's walleye water, smallmouth water, musky water, sturgeon live there. The Namakagan joins the St. Croix. And together, they constitute about 200 miles of, I believe it was the first National Scenic Riverway created in the country, thanks uh, to our former governor and senator, Gaylord Nelson, and efforts of other folks. But there's a, there's a stretch of the Namakagan and the St. Croix where you won't see any development at all. You cross under a few bridges. Access is pretty easy because there's our canoe landings you know throughout the river and fishing can be good um the the only issue that most fishermen have with it is it's also a popular tubing stream uh, so, uh there are some put in and take out points where you're just as likely to meet a half a dozen uh girls in bikinis and guys with floating coolers uh floating down the river in in the summer but if you fish early and late in the day and early and late in the year you're less likely to to encounter that and you know they the fish are used to it uh, i've seen uh, bass uh hit right after a flotilla of 
of uh, tubes went down, you know, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you told me about that. That's like I said, that hatch has been something I'd read about. And, um, you know, one of those places that, to have on my list of, gosh, someday I got to get up there and check that out. So I want to ask you about a story you told me when we were in Minnesota. And then I think you repeated it back to me when I was on your show. And I want to hear the story because I want us to talk a little bit about sort of what we've been talking about, which is a lot of local knowledge and how one's familiarity with fishing in familiar places can seem so foreign to us when we venture into new waters, like me going out on ice, particularly, you know, when you move from, say, fishing in Wisconsin to fishing in the Gulf of Mexico. So, yeah, tell me about that trip you took to the Gulf of Mexico and your encounter with fishing with live shrimp. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was actually in grad school in Houston at Rice University for three years. And first two years, I never, I did not fish the ocean because to me, it was like standing on the edge of the world and throwing out, you know, your bait into, into what? Oblivion. You know, I was a trout fisherman, a stream fisherman. And then we went to Galveston and the currents come in and out and there are bridge pilings. And I realized, hey, wait a minute, this is like a river. This is holding structure. And then uh, my my buddy, um, whose real name is Patrick Henry, uh, and uh, he's from New York, uh, New York City. And I taught him how to fish. Um, and he now lives in Walla Walla, Washington, and he retired from Whitman College from teaching um philosophy and french lit there and he's a montaigne scholar by the way he's an interesting guy to talk to anyway uh pat and i would buy we'd go down to the dock and we would buy a quart of live shrimp and we keep the shrimp in a, a bucket uh, floating next to us as we waded in the shallow water and we caught uh, flounder we caught reds we caught uh, speckled trout and once in a while, we had blue crabs would grab our fish by the tail. And we realized, hey, wait a minute, we can take our landing net and get it under the, the crab. And more than once, we took home a cooler full of crabs as well. And if we, if we didn't catch fish or if we had any shrimp left over, we would take the shrimp home and boil them up and eat them. And I think you told me, uh, yeah, that's, that's what people do with their, with their live shrimp. Fresh gulf shrimp for bait and then for supper if you didn't catch it if you had any bait left over absolutely yeah when you told me that story the first time it took my took my thinking to kind of come around to realize yeah the thing that is so familiar i mean i think that's the first thing we learn on salt water shrimp yeah. everything in the ocean eats shrimp mm -hmm. whether it's dead shrimp or live shrimp but you know like you said flounder and trout and reds you know they want live shrimp and so I'm sitting here thinking, Dan Small, who has this incredible experience as an angler all over the place, is talking about live shrimp like it's some kind of novelty, interesting subject when this is what we teach three-year-olds. And yeah. so what it got me thinking about is just like me out there on the ice knowing absolutely nothing, I have to remember that people who come to the Gulf of Mexico and are told, you know, go fish with live shrimp that that can seem bizarre or new or unusual. Um, I think I told you that um, my dad was sitting in a barber chair one time and a uh, guy comes in to get his hair cut and he says he's from the Midwest. The barber asks him, well, have you been fishing? And the guy says, what do you mean? Is there a lake around here? <laughs> said, no, the ocean's right there a block away. 
And he goes, there's no fish in the ocean. That thing's all salt water. Nothing can live in that. <laughs> and I, my dad and the barber just kind of looked at each other, but that notion, you know, we don't, we don't know the environments and make assumptions from our locale onto that. And so when you told me that about the shrimp, I had to pause and think, how did you not know about the shrimp? Yeah. Well, we don't know what we don't know. Yep, and, absolutely. You know, um, we, we, we caught on pretty quickly with some, I don't remember who said you got to buy live shrimp, but fishing with live shrimp is basically like fishing with live chubs. We would hook a live chub through the tail with maybe one split shot or, or just let it swim freely and let it go and keep your finger on the line with the bail open. And boy, when that line twitches or takes off, you know, you got something. Yep. Has that been your only saltwater fishing experience was back when you were in grad school? No, I, as an outdoor writer, had the opportunity a couple of times to fish down in, uh, in your state, in Florida. I actually won a writing contest with a story that I wrote about taking my son, John, fishing. That was in the Sports of Field Annual, I think in 1983. And it was, uh, I think I called it Stardom Early, Stardom Right. And uh, this was uh, an outdoor writers contest, but it was before the Outdoor Writers Association actually had organized writing contests. And so the prize put together by Zebco and I forget who else, uh, what other sponsors, was a three-day fishing trip in the Keys. Oh, great. So, yeah, so I got to, to uh, fish for uh, tarpon and... Uh, what else did we catch? I did not catch a permit, but I caught uh, one bonefish and uh, two 50-pound tarpon. And um, we fished with a guy named Cal Cochran out of Isla Mirada, I think he was. And a guy, I oh, can't remember Rick's last name, but a younger guy named Rick. And he, he had some great stories. And uh, I, that was my introduction to saltwater fly fishing. He had a 12-weight fly rod. And I, I had not even musky fished with a fly rod yet at that point i just couldn't handle that bigger rod the, the the wind was coming in off the you know coming at me on my right shoulder and so the line was dumping and but i caught him on uh what they call light spinning which was musky tackle there and boy that was exciting i can still envision i don't know how many tarpon i hooked and lost but one of them said it jumped and i can still see that dollar size eye looking at me from above my vantage point as it spit the shrimp and left. I mean, that was an experience. Yeah. That's, that to me is just pure fun fishing. That's uh, that's my retirement plan. You just described right there. So, all right. All right I got to ask you about the wild harvest cookbook. Tell me about that book. Well, uh, Nancy and I did an occasional cooking segment on outdoor Wisconsin back in the eighties. And, those segments were popular people wanted the recipes and then somebody said when are you guys going to do a cookbook and we went oh a cookbook what a great idea so we gathered recipes from family and friends and our own recipes and put them together with um photos um and and stories and my publisher at the time um well his name will come to me in a bit here um he he wanted to make it both a, a a cookbook and a coffee table book. So he he paid for some photos that were, you know, again back in the eighties they they weren't 
quite as spectacular as photos you'd see today in in cookbooks, but or in any book really. But um, it was a combination of of recipes and stories, um, little anecdotes about each recipe or about each creature that we were uh, cooking, and uh, and then some photos. And the first version, it's it's actually the same book. The first version was the official Outdoor Wisconsin Cookbook. And when that ran out of print, uh, the publisher said, well, we're just going to put a soft cover on it, call it Wild Harvest, and keep selling it. And so it's it, it, absolutely the same book. So if people have copies of one or the other, you've got you've got the book. So how does it's so an interesting question then? How does a cookbook become authorized as the official Wisconsin cookbook? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, the official outdoor Wisconsin uh, cookbook. Yeah. I was gonna say, I assume that then because it's Wisconsin, there's a lot of cheese recipes and bratwurst and butter burgers and fish fries and fish boils. And I gotta ask because I don't know what is booyah stew. I don't know. that's a a southern thing i think i don't know Uh, that was one of those things that i heard was a wisconsin thing but i will i will let it go yeah not not in my lexicon but um yeah the 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 cookbook is um it's it's wild game and fish so there's no brats uh, there's a lot of grilling and there's a fish boil and fish fry and that kind of thing oh that sounds so good now i'm getting hungry Dan, this has all been fantastic, but I think it's time for me to get to my traditional wrap-up question. And it's a question I'm kind of eager to hear your reply since you're so ingrained in Wisconsin and the Midwest. And so the question is, what is your grail fish? What's the bucket list fish that's still out there waiting for Dan Small to catch and also to tell the story about? Because, you know, after all these years, you're not just catching fish. You're narrating in your head, waiting to tell that story when you're catching it. So what's what's the grail fish for Dan Small? Well, if we keep it in Wisconsin, I think it would be a hook and line sturgeon. Uh, I have not caught one. I have uh, tried uh, spearing them, and that's a whole nother game. You sit in a, a dark house with a four by, well, actually a two or three foot by six foot hole and a spear, and you wait for a sturgeon to come by and you drop it on them. And, you know, yeah, that that fascinates me. I talked to Carrie Zilka about that. I caught talked to Steve Griffin about that. Yeah. Um, sturgeon fascinate me, and that whole sturgeon spearing thing really fascinates me. Yeah, and you know, people uh, liken it to duck hunting by lying on your back and looking up your chimney and waiting for a duck to fly <laughs> over. Because uh, once I did the, I did a calculation. I don't remember the numbers, but Lake Winnebago, which is the lake where uh, the sturgeon spearing is allowed in Wisconsin, 130,000 acres. And I don't know how many adult sturgeon, but you know, how many acres per sturgeon and then how much of an acre is your little hole and what are the odds? And not real good, not real good, but hook and line fishing is allowed on certain rivers and lakes um, in the fall. It's not real glamorous at gobba night crawlers with a heavy weight on the bottom and the, glamorous part or the fun part is the fight and have you caught them outside of wisconsin I, no i have not i have not um i know people who do it and uh i think i'd like to you know that's probably the only wisconsin fish of note that i haven't caught 
Yeah, I've had the opportunity to do it in the Northwest and have caught some up there. Exactly as you say, big glob of bait, very minimal nibble that you bear, but the fight is what it's all about. Actually, uh, you mentioned Northwest. I did sturgeon fish on the Snake River once when my son was living in in uh, Seattle, and uh, we caught a couple shorties, but you know they were I don't know 30, 35, 40 inch fish, not not the monsters. So. Thanks for jogging my memory on that one. So, so outside of Wisconsin, then what's the grail? Uh, probably, a, probably a tarpon on the fly. You know, the two tarpon I caught were on spinning gear. And um, now I think I could, I still would not throw a 12 weight or a 14 weight fly rod, but uh, if I could hook one, um, you know, I think I'd have a, I'd have a chance of, of landing it if I had enough backing on my reel. <laughs> Yeah, that's a fantastic experience. And, you know, it's interesting in the lore of fishing, how that has been elevated throughout the literature of, you know, this is, this is a quest that, you know, there's actually, I've got a book on my shelf called Tarpon Quest. Yeah, you know, this is, this is, has become sort of that upper echelon for all experienced anglers. I want a tarpon on the fly. Or the way the narrative really goes is I want a hundred pound tarpon on oh, the fly, yeah. right? So, you know. yeah. But Dan, this has been great. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. It's great to see you again. Great to get a chance to talk again. I'm hoping we'll get a chance to fish together again sometime soon. But in all seriousness, thank you, sir, for being on the Rodcast. My pleasure, Sid. It was a lot of fun. All right, my listening crew, after that great conversation with Dan, I think it's time for a bourbon break. And on this week's bourbon break, I thought I'd try something I've never had before in an attempt to learn a little bit more about whiskeys. You see, I had read about what is called sweet feed whiskey or sweet feed moonshine, and I'd been wanting to try one just to learn a little bit more about them. So I decided to randomly select a sweet feed and give it a whirl. So on this week's bourbon break, I'll be pouring a bit from Leatherwood Distillery Sweet Feed Whiskey. Now, first, a bit of a definition here. You see, a sweet feed whiskey is a whiskey that's made with a mash bill that includes both grains and molasses. That term sweet feed comes from the practice of feeding horses and livestock a sweet feed mixture of grains and molasses. In fact, you can even find pre-mixed sweet feed at feed stores like Tractor Supply. Now, to continue the clarification, molasses is one of those things that you end up with when you refine sugarcane into the crystalline sugar we know. Sometimes manufacturers will add sulfurs to molasses, but that process also adds a preservative that can prevent the sugar from interacting with the yeast that you'd use in, say, fermentation. Now, this is particularly important when distilling rum because molasses is what provides the sugar and the nutrient to the way rum is made. Now, one of the other things about molasses, and let me be clear here, we're talking about the byproduct of sugar refining, not the acids of moles, not mole acids. We do not add mole acids to whiskey and rum. Anyway, the Brits call molasses black treacle, and it can be made from refining sugarcane or beets into sugar, depending on how it's refined, and that determines how much sugar is in the molasses. Now, molasses made from sugarcane can taste okay, and in the U.S., we use it to sweeten some foods. Certainly, you've had homemade cookies with molasses, and I'll tell you that one of my favorite brines for smoking salmon, 
involves curing the fish with a molasses mixture. The molasses made from beets, though, is disgusting and disgusting smelling and terrible tasting. And it gets used primarily in animal feed. And they do this a lot in Europe and Russia in particular because they've got a lot of beets. It's also the key component in brown sugar. Anyway, sweet feed whiskey uses a blend of grain and molasses for its mash bill. And so I was intrigued to find out what that was like. So I got hold of some of Leatherwood Distillery's sweet feed whiskey. Now, I know that it's probably unfair of me to make a judgment call about sweet feed whiskeys in total based on trying one distiller's rendition. So I'll make my comments just about Leatherwood Distillery Sweet Feed Whiskey and try not to let that influence my overall impression of Sweet Feeds in general. All right, so first, how about a little bit of background on Leatherwood Distillery, which really has a cool backstory. You see, Leatherwood was founded by Green Beret Andrew Lang, who back in 1996 was making sweet wines when he was stationed overseas. And he'd make wine for his special forces buddies. And while he was stationed along the border of Kuwait and waiting for the invasion order, he got to boasting that he could make wine from the stuff in his MREs. And sure enough, he did it. Well, what he did, according to the Leatherwood web pages, was that he boiled water from a bottle, melted a pack of MRE Skittles, then added a crushed piece of stale, self-stable bread, and he let it sit. The sugar and the yeast started to ferment, and yep, he had booze. Later, when he was stationed in Afghanistan, using an empty beer keg and a turkey cooker, he began distilling using local river water and livestock feed he could get from Afghani feed stores. And now, Leatherwood Distilleries, based in Nashville, well, they make rum and rye and bourbons and moonshines, and they like to emphasize using the local ingredients, much as he did when he was in Afghanistan. And now that I know that, I'm going to be on the lookout for some Leatherwood bourbons and ryes to try also. But for this week, let me tell you about my thoughts about Leatherwood Distillery's Sweet Feed Whiskey. And like I said, this is an unfair review because I don't want this one Sweet Feed experience to jade my thoughts about Sweet Feeds overall, nor do I want this Sweet Feed to establish my thoughts about the other 13 spirits that Leatherwood produces. And I am dying to try Leatherwood's Moonshine and their Midnight Extraction. But I got to say that if Leatherwood's version of a sweet feed is indicative of all sweet feeds, I am not a fan. I'm not usually a fan of flavored whiskeys, but the sweet feed did not find a home with me either. Now, it's made from corn, wheat, rolled oats, and dried molasses, but I don't know what the exact mash bill is. And it's aged over American and French oak chips and is an 80-proof whiskey. Now, the eye of the sweet feed is darker than a lot of whiskeys, and I assume that's because of the molasses inclusion, since molasses is best described as a dark, dark brown, nearly black color. Now, I thought I was going to like this sweet feed because the nose opens rich and complex. There's a great nose of sweet caramel, honey, and some sweet fruits like dark cherries and dried fruit. There's also some spice here, too, mostly in some cinnamon. But the palate did not live up to the nose for me. The whiskey was very thin, but the flavor was off-putting. The sweet from the nose didn't show up in the palate. Instead, there was a blast of heavy grain flavor, and the molasses showed up like a blackstrap molasses, rather bitter and smoky, but not in a good smoky way. In fact, I have to say that when I took the second taste, just to make sure I wasn't missing something, 
I knew for certain that the molasses was affecting the flavor beyond what I liked. Don't get me wrong. When my grandma would make oatmeal cookies using molasses, I loved that molasses flavor. In fact, I do indeed have a jar of molasses in my cabinet because, as I said, I use it in a salmon brine that I use, and I like its flavor in that. And yeah, just so you know, I mix the molasses with dry vermouth as the primary ingredients for that brine for salmon. Good stuff. Now, the finish is what I would call a medium finish, but it seemed thin and really just had the linger of molasses with a hint of cinnamon spiciness. Now, I guess that maybe because of how hearty sweet feed is as a livestock feed or how dark, thick, and rich molasses is, I guess I expected a heavier whiskey, one that you could bite into like a molasses ginger snap or a molasses glazed ham. Oh, so good or one of those dark Boston brown breads that you really got to chew that has molasses in it. Or one of my favorites, a good old bourbon molasses pecan pie. But those foods left me with an expectation that I just didn't find with the Leatherwood sweet feet, I am sorry to say. So yes, out of respect to Leatherwood's master distiller, Green Beret, Andrew Lang, I'm going to try a few more of his spirits, but I'm going to pass on the sweet feed. And those are my thoughts about Leatherwood's, Leatherwood Distillery Sweet Feed Whiskey. As always, please keep in mind that the Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all. Though, as I always say, I am open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. And the bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a shout-out to a great little speakeasy in Knoxville, Tennessee, the Peter Kern Library. Now, this is a true speakeasy, and there are no signs anywhere telling you it's there. If you know what you're looking for, there's a little alley off of Union Avenue just past Market Square. Go down that alley, look for the single red light, and knock on the door. If they let you in, you'll find yourself in a beautiful little bourbon bar. And they'll tell you when you come in that it's communal seating, so expect to sit with folks you don't know when you arrive, but will certainly know when you leave. Oh, and if they don't answer the door when you knock, just go around into the lobby of the Oliver Hotel, since technically the Peter Kern Library is the Oliver's bar. But you'll need to ask where the bar is, since there are no signs in the lobby, and a hostess will have to slide open a wall panel to let you slip inside. And once you're inside, the library bourbon and whiskey menus features about 130 spirits to choose from and some great bartenders who really know their bourbony stuff. I took advantage of their knowledge and tried three or four whiskeys I'd never had before, and I'm sure I'll be getting back to them in future bourbon reviews. Anyway, if you're in Knoxville, be sure to check out the Peter Kern Library. So let us toast to bread, for without bread, there would be no toast. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. And now, back to the water. Okay, my listening crew, it is time for this week's Fishing Professor's Top 10. And you know, I was looking back at past episodes and I was re-listening to episode 1.24, the one with Bill Dance. And in that episode, I count down my top 10 swim baits for targeting bass, which made sense since it was the Bill Dance episode. But it got me to thinking about how versatile swim baits are. So I thought for this week, I'd like to count down my top 10 swim, swim baits 
for saltwater application. So yeah, let's do that. The professor's top 10 swim baits for inshore application. Now, of course, defining what a swim bait actually is can be kind of problematic since the term swim bait gets applied to all kinds of lures. There are hard body swim baits and soft body swim baits. And I suppose if we were to really try to define a swim bait, then we'd have to say that what makes a swim bait a swim bait is that they're designed to mimic a bait fish and a bait fish's swimming action. They're subsurface lures usually, but yeah, swim bait has some degree of articulation within the body of the lure. The tail moves or something like that. That is to say, a good swim bait is more than a stick because that's what stick baits are. So with a soft body swim bait, there's a lot of wiggling and waving in the tail. And in the hard, hard swim baits, there's going to be a jointed body or a segmented body or something that lets parts of the body move independently one of another to create the, the illusion of a fish swimming. And, you know, since swim baits can be either hard-bodied or soft-bodied lures, and I've got some of each in this list, I'm just going to make the list inclusive. This can be hard body or soft-body swim baits. All right, let's kick things off with the top 10 with a great swim bait that has earned a great reputation in the saltwater world, and that's Tsunami's Holographic 6 in the single-hook swim baits. These are a shad-style soft body that come pre-rigged with a musted 6-aught hook. They're made from a soft vinyl bot body with an ultra-realistic holographic foil core and 3D eyes. Now, they use this holographic coloration that makes them great for reds and trout and snook and tarpon and other inshore species. They come in three, four, five, six, six and a half, seven, and nine inch versions, ranging in weight from three eighths of an ounce up to six and a quarter ounces. They come in about a dozen holographic color options, and man, are they good. All right, at number nine, how about the Storm Wild Eye? This is just a great swim bait and overall a truly popular lure among saltwater anglers. Like the Tsunami Holographic, the Wild Eye is a soft body, shad body design. It uses a secure eye bolt holographic Wild Eye and an internal holographic foil that gives it a great visual. It's pre-rigged and has an internal weight and it comes in two, three, four, five, six, or nine inch models. It's available in more than a dozen really dynamic color patterns. All right, for number eight, let's stick with the soft bodies and also with the shad design and throw Saltwater Assassin's Sea Shad into the mix. And you got to remember that uh, Saltwater Assassin and Bass Assassin have a great catalog of soft body lures, same company, but they've got fresh and saltwater stuff. But I am, I will admit that I am a fan of the four inch Sea Shad. And I think the paddle tail on this mold gives this soft body just a fantastic swimming action. I also like how durable this lure is and the color options are great. In fact, Saltwater Assassin offers the four inch Sea Shad in more than 115 color options. Really just a fantastic palette to choose from. And I like the fact that you can rig it just about any way you can rig a soft body too. All right, at number seven, how about Hoagie's slow tail paddles? Now, this is just a dynamic, well-designed swim bait from a company that has earned its reputation in making eel imitators. But the Hoagie slow tail swim bait is unlike their eel offerings. It's a soft body design, but it's designed for a slow presentation. 
It features a twin ribbon tail design that really moves a lot in the water, even at very slow retrieve speeds. The plastics are made with a rugged UV-infused heavy-duty soft plastic material, and they come in three size options, a 3.5-inch, a 4.25-inch, and a 5.5-inch size. The 3.5 and the 4 and a quarter are pre-rigged with 4-aught VMC Barbarian hooks, and the 5.5 has an 8-aught Barbarian hook. Just a great inshore lure with a really strong backbone of a hook, and it comes from this great company, Hoagie. All right, at number six, how about Z-Man's Diesel Chatterbait? You gotta love this lure and its versatility in both fresh and salt water. Now, it's really a hybrid swim bait with a soft body paddle tail, style body, and a chatterbait blade in front of the lure. That hex shaped chatter blade can be fine tuned by bending it to adjust the depth at which the lure swims. It also works as a great weed guard. The diesel chatterbait also uses a unique stainless steel double barb keeping spike to hold the Elaztec soft body onto the hook so you don't get the soft body sliding down the jig head like you do on some jig heads. Lots of great color options and a working weight of a quarter of an ounce. All right, for number five, let's not leave the soft bodies aside yet, but let's add to them with a lure that is available in both a hard and soft version to give a really effective swim bait, and that's Berkeley's Magic Swimmer. Now, if I'm not mistaken, the Magic Swimmer was designed by Patrick Sibyl and originally sold under the Sibyl brand, but Berkeley acquired the design. This is a jointed lure with three body sections. It's available in floating models, sinking models, and fast sinking models. It's got a really great forward buoyancy that keeps the swimming action staying in constant motion, giving that lure great action. The key to that action comes from the Magic Swimmer's tapered nose and humpbacked head, which slices through the water, making turbulence first on one side, then on the other. There are 16 color patterns available, and it's just great all-around swim bait to have at your disposal. All right, let's go to number four with a tough decision here. You see, I want to point to all of the swim baits in Live Target's Saltwater Swim Bait series. You see, there are eight great baits in this line, and all use the same unique tail design and visual accuracy to create really lifelike swimming uh, series of lures. But I think for the sake of this top 10, I want to give props to the Live Target Croaker Swim Bait. This is absolutely the best croaker imitator out there. And there are two versions of it, the Atlantic croaker and the yellowfin croaker. They're available in four or five inch sizes. I love the inline hooks on these. They align up with the molded dorsal fin to create a near weedless kind of weed guard. They look incredibly real and they swim like a real croaker swims. Just a great bait. All right. At number three, if you know me, you know I can't have this list without Eager Bait's Voodoo Mullet. And yes, if you haven't seen my review of the Voodoo Mullet over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, you've got to check it out. It may be one of the best informed gear reviews in the history of fishing tackle, if not one of the most entertaining gear reviews in the history of fishing tackle, if I may say so myself. But the Voodoo Mullet is one of the most active swim baits out there. Its eight-section TPE plastic body has so much wiggle and movement that it swims like no other lure out there. There are two versions, a three-and-a-half and a four-and-a-half-inch version, and they come pre-rigged with a belly-mounted treble hook, 
but they're rigged with a split ring, so you can switch them out to a single hook if you prefer. They're available in a dozen color options. These are also a medium sink lure. All right, let's get to the runner-up position. And at number two this week, my second favorite saltwater swim bait has to be Miralure's Marshminnow. Marsh, <laughs> Not a marshmallow, a marshminnow. This is a three and three quarter inch paddle tail styled soft body. And unlike the other soft bodies in this list, though, the Miralure Marshminnow is a scented soft body. So it's got great swimming action and the added benefit of scent. Plus, comes in 17 color options for the visual attractant. All right. So those are my top 10, nine favorite top nine of my top 10 favorite swim baits for saltwater inshore. But before we get to my numero uno, how about a quick recap to help us recall those other nine great lures? At 10, Tsunami's Holographic 6 and Single Hook Swim Baits. At 9, Storm's Wild Eye. At 8, Saltwater Assassin's Sea Shad. At 7, Hoagie's Slow Tail and Swim Bait. At 6, Z-Man's Diesel Chatter Bait. 5, Berkeley's Magic Swimmer. 4, Live Target's Croaker Swim Bait. At 3, the Voodoo Mullet. At 2, the Marilure Marshminnow. And my number one favorite swim bait, it's a classic, the tried and true inshore bait from not just one of the iconic lure companies, but from one of the, I can't, and from one of the iconic lure designers, Mr. Mark Nichols and DOA Lures and their Bait Buster. Now, DOA is clear that the Bait Buster ain't pretty, but it is effective. The Bait Buster, which is four and a quarter inches long, comes in three styles, a shallow runner that weighs in at five-eighths of an ounce, a pre-rigged with a four-aught hook that is rigged to point up, and that one's a medium sink lure. The deep runner version weighs in at three-quarters of an ounce and is rigged with a five-aught mustard hook. And the trolling version is rigged with a five-aught mustard hook. The color options for the Bait Buster are fantastic with 54 color patterns, all in all, the DOA Bait Buster is probably not just one of the most successful swim baits out there, but it is also one of the most effective swim baits for inshore application. And that is this week's Fishing Professor's Top 10 Swim Bait for Inshore Saltwater Application. Hope you enjoyed it. So long. Farewell. Out feeder stand good night. I hate to go and leave this pretty sight. So long, farewell. Out feeder stand adieu, adieu, adieu to you and you and you. So long, farewell. Au revoir, our feeder stand. I'd like to stay and taste my first champagne. Unfortunately, though, it is time for me to say Alf Wienerstand good night as we wrap up another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Hey, I want to thank Dan Small for taking the time to chat with me today. And for those of you hanging out in the Midwest, be sure to check out the Dan Small Outdoor Radio Show. It's a great show. And I do hope you found my thoughts about Leatherwood Distillery Sweet Feed Whiskey to be telling. And I hope the countdown of my top 10 swim baits for salt water was useful for you. Hey, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The anchor is holding. I say again, the anchor is holding. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which should drop on Wednesday next week, because they always do. 
And I hope you and all the members of the listening crew are out there spreading the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you've got a comment, a question, or want to tell me something about this week's show or something else about fishing, or want to make a recommendation for future top 10, something you'd like to learn about, bourbon breaks, something you'd like me to drink, or possible interviews, or even information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. Or you can leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other great content. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!